Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews. How are you all? Well, all I can say is Happy New Year. We've made it through. We're in 2021. My goodness. Let's just hope it's a better year. Um, I would like to start the the new year. In fact, Lee has messaged me saying, um, please, can you tell us all your New Year's resolutions? Thank you very much for your question, Lee. Um, My answer is stay alive. I think think that's what I'm aiming for and have lots and lots of glorious, wonderful books. What do you think? Are you with me? Yes. Anyway, fun, funny story. I've got to tell you this. My mother will kill me if I tell you, but it, it's hilarious. Um, I've been investigating whether to have some acupuncture. And so I said, I told her that this is what I was thinking of. And she said, well, if you want to have acupuncture, you go for it. And I just had this vision of someone using some sort of very heavy hose pipe to create punctures in my shoulder uh, to ease the frozen shoulder. So there there you go. Forget acupuncture. It's all about aquapuncture. Never mind. Well, I have got some amazing books to talk to you about today. Honestly, you're going to be wanting to order quite a few, I'm afraid. Um, But first, let's look at what the Facebook group are are reading at the moment. If you want to join us, you'd be very welcome. Just go onto Facebook and type in the QuickBook Reviews podcast and uh, you come along and join us and we can talk all things books, which is always very glorious. So Kate is reading The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman. Leslie's reading Thin Air by Anne Cleves. Claire's reading Body Language by A.K. Turner. Laura's reading The Invisible Life of Addie de la Rue. Uh, Johan's um, reading The Split by Sharon Bolton. Zoe's reading The Appeal by Janice Hallett. Lots of books. Rowena's uh, reading The Beekeeper of Aleppo. Jen is reading Little Girls Tell Tales by Rachel Bennett. And Janine's reading Seven Lies by Elizabeth Kay. Wow, those all sound those all sound fabulous. Covered a few of them, um, but uh, more to cover, I think. Funnily enough, lots more books. Anyway, let's get on to what books we're, we're talking about. It's a bit of a red theme this week. It wasn't intentional, but most of the books have red covers. And the first one is called The Last Thing to Burn by Will Dean. This is an extraordinary book. And we're actually lucky enough to be able to talk to Will a little bit later on. Um, We're also going to look at The Therapist by B.A. Paris. 
um, a, more of a classic because those two books are new this year. Um, so then I've also gone for a classic, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, 19, which was published in 1938. That's not when I first read it, funnily enough. Although the last time I read it, I was at school and all I could remember uh, was that there were rhododendrons on the drive. Turns out there's quite a bit more to the book than that. Who knew? Anyway, um, some poetry. You know I love my poetry and this one's great. The Poetry Pharmacy. Uh, by William Steichart. That was published in 2017, so that's been around a few years. Um, Hitler and Stalin, a non-fiction, gosh, look at me, by Lawrence Rees. That was published last year. And The Law of Innocence, which is uh, again published 2020 by Michael Connolly. I listened to that on audiobook, but uh, that's another cracker to talk to you about. So we've got lots of books. We've got lots of books. We've got we've got six books to talk to you about. And let's get started. So book one, The Last Thing to Burn by Will Dean is out on the 7th of January. So only a couple of days if you're listening to this podcast on the day it's released. Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary book for me, about 240 pages of perfection. Um, they say it's misery meets room. I I don't know because those I couldn't read. They're too much for me. Whereas this has more to it. Um, so don't don't avoid it if you think it's too scary. It's it, it is scary, but it's just on the acceptable edge of scariness, I would say. And it's just a book you, you need to read. Let's read the blurb. Here's her husband. She is his captive. Her husband calls her Jane. That is not her name. She lives in a small farm cottage surrounded by vast open fields. Everywhere she looks there is space, but she is trapped. No one knows how she got to the UK. No one knows she is there. Visitors rarely come to the farm. If they do, she is never seen. Her husband records her every movement during the day. If he doesn't like what he sees, she is punished. For a long time, escape seemed impossible, but now... Something has changed. She has a reason to live and a reason to fight. She is watching him and waiting. As I say, it's just a book. It's a book I will never forget. Um, it was incredible. I couldn't put it down. It, it's just one to read. Um, unless all you want to read are sort of cosy crimes or uplit, then yeah, OK, this, this won't be for you. But for anyone who's into crime, thrillers, psychological thrillers... Um, suspense, horror, just, it's a great book. I'm so glad I got to read it. And I think we need to talk to Will now and find out more about this amazing book. So, Will, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's it's good to be with you. Well, this book, this glorious book, I had I had other things to do the day the book arrived and it's your fault that that nothing got done. I just sat there. It, I mean, it, it's amazing. And, and this this feeling of sort of claustrophobia. You live um, sort of in a cabin in, in Sweden. Could you have written this book if you were still in the UK? Thank, thank you, first of all. Um, honestly, I'm not sure. I've lived here full time now for for eight years in a kind of isolated way. But mm. I think it's more that I probably couldn't have written this book if I hadn't been brought up in the landscape of the book, which is the Fens, this extremely flat, featureless uh, landscape. So I think that that was probably the key, that I'm I'm really aware of the eerie quality of the Fens and of the seasons and of the weather and of how 
isolating and kind of tense it can feel in that part of the world. And this, it's fair to say this isn't your first book. You've written this incredible series all about Tuva. Has Tuva forgiven you for stepping away from her for <laughs> for the time being to, to write this? I like to think that she doesn't know anything about it. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> it feels like, I don't know, I feel like I've kind of split my writer brain into two parts now. And the Tuva thing is very different to the standalone novels. Mm. And I think they both help each other as for me as a writer, but also I, I just enjoy the flexibility of being able to write these very intense standalone novels as well as a long running series, because the series has a lot more light and dark, light and shade. It's, it's more comforting as well as dark, whereas the standalone novels can go, can be more intense and can be more dark and in a way that I couldn't sustain over a series of them. Like I couldn't write a sequel to this book. The last thing to burn. It's a very much it's a one book thing. But had this book been burning a hole in your heart for a while? Had you had to get to a certain point with Tuva to sort of put it to one side and, and do this? Or was this just when it hit you, it had to be written? I think it's pretty much when it hit. I mean, part of it is a confidence thing. Like I find writing difficult. I, I find writing, like transferring the idea from my brain to the page really, really challenging. And I don't think I was confident enough to write this book years ago. So in, in, in a way, I just needed to, to gain some confidence and to grow a little bit as a writer. But also, I actually came up with the idea for this book in 2016. So oh. that was before Dark Pines was even published. Yeah. And then, so I came up with it between 12 midnight and 6 a.m. one morning. In oh, bed. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. The entire book came to me. And then the next year, 2017, I wrote the first draft in three weeks. Wow. And then since, yeah, it's, I've got a very unhealthy writing process. <laughs> <laughs> and then since then, I've been writing it and trying to improve it and perfect the dialogue and the, the dialect in the novel and things like that for the last kind of two or three years. So it's quite a long project. This one. Even though it's quite a short novel, it's a long project. And as you were uh, carrying out that that project, did you find you had to dial up the pressure or dial down the pressure as the book evolved? That's a good question. I think the tension was there from the beginning. That was that was in there. That was like fundamental to the entire story because the story is so simple. It's just these two characters. The tension between them, kind of good versus evil dynamic. Mm. This need to survive momentum is is through the whole book it was more things like Len's dialect the antagonist's dialect I needed to perfect that and that took me a lot of rewriting to get it so it was kind of authentic to to the East Midlands and to the Fens but not too much that it's difficult to read mm. and when you had that that idea overnight that sort of midnight to 6 a.m that that clarity of a story what did the ending come in that moment as well or was that later on it, it did I mean I, I didn't see the I'm not good enough to see the entire book but I saw the kind of the main scenes if you like and I did see kind of roughly the ending but it's very foggy at that point so it's just I have like a feeling rather than a, a clear idea but the thing that really struck me was this image that I had in my head. That's the first thing that came to me was the image of this extremely open landscape with no physical boundaries, no mountains or walls or fences. And this, I saw this farm, this dilapidated, crumbling, 
isolated farm and two characters living there and the woman wanted to leave but she could not leave mm. and that was what was fascinating me why is she there why can she not leave how can she finally get away from this place and and i was interested actually in in what came first whether it was the the, the picture of jane in your mind or, or the farm itself so it was the the farm first and then you sort of zoomed in who, who who's in this building was that yeah sort of all i mean the... In a, well, in a way, it was both at exactly the same time. It was literally, I saw the farm from above in my mind's eye. And then I saw this character walking around, like very close to the farm cottage, but she could never get away. And I was just fascinated by that. What is her story? I wanted to do her justice and to figure out her background and her life story. And, and I knew it would be tense because I felt a knot in my stomach from that, that morning onwards. And every time I wrote it, I felt really uncomfortable. It was, the tension was so extreme that I felt really uncomfortable writing it in a way. And did that tension resolve itself when the book was finished? No, because <laughs> I wish it had, because in a way I have, you know, as, as, as any author does, you have to rewrite and you have to go through edits mm. and, and copy edits and proofread. And every time I read it, even though I knew what happened, Every time I, I read it and I, and I worked on it, I felt uncomfortable and tense because I was so invested in the main character's mm. survival and in her family, because this is a thriller. It's very much a tense thriller, but it's also about love and family and, and resilience and mm. surviving. So I was just really rooting for her, which sounds strange because I know the whole span of the story, but I was really rooting for her and I felt her kind of her pain and her, anguish all the way through but I think that that's a great mark of you as an author that you care that much that the the character is that real um and that comes across I think in in the writing do you always have those midnight revelations or was that quite unusual for you as a writer no that's the one and only time this has happened so I might be waiting 50 years for that <laughs> to happen again no I mean normally I have like an image like that like a scenario and then I see someone in that situation. I see a character. And then I'm obsessed with finding out what motivates that character, what that character is afraid of, what they love, why they can't get what they want to get. I'm just, I don't know. I see, I, I love the intersection of landscape and character. So I, I see a landscape and then I'm, I want to work out who's living there and how, how they're doing, basically, and how their relationships are. But if there's another image that comes to you at midnight, presumably you'll be there with your notepad and pen writing furiously. <laughs> it, I, I think this is going to be a book that is just going to set the world on fire in, in, for 2021. You know, it's such a strong book. Um, did you did you feel that when you were writing it, that this was an extraordinary piece? No, I, I don't think... I don't think I ever feel like that about my my writing. I just feel with this one, I did feel it was very it felt quite complete and quite whole and quite it's quite simple in a way, the book. And I think often a lot of my favorite books that I've read in the past are quite simple and, and strong for that simplicity. Mm -hmm. They don't rely on complicated plots and things like that. They rely on just a, a very, very kind of powerful setup and and characters that you really believe in and you really love or really hate. And so, no, I, I, I find it difficult to, 
be objective about the books or to have any distance from them. And for, for so many years, I'm just trying to get them to be better than they are, you know, trying to polish mm -hmm. and work on little bits of dialogue and imagery. So, yeah, it's, um, I think if I, if I pick up the book in five years time, I'll just start fiddling with it again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and how do you keep the pace going? Because for a scene that's quite static in some ways, the, the pace is extraordinary. How do you manage that, that marriage between the two? Thank you. That's a, that's a great question because yeah, it is a very, by definition, it's a very static scene. As you say, it's like there's, she's stuck there, but mm. I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that I write the first draft in three weeks and I never get out of the main character's head. So I'm constantly thinking about the book at night when I'm having lunch, when I'm having a break in the evening, when I'm picking my boy up from school, I'm constantly thinking about the next scene and I'm constantly there on that farm for those three weeks. So there's always momentum because I'm writing it quite quickly that first draft. There's a lot of momentum. I'm, I'm, I'm being kind of pushed through the story myself because I'm telling myself the story really for the first time as it's coming out on the page. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do like uh, a pacey book. And yeah, I, if, if you think that this is pacey whilst being stuck in the same place, then that's it. That's, I'm very happy to hear that. Oh, gosh. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the fact that, uh, and we're not going to give anything away, but the fact that she has these four possessions. Uh, I mean, that was incredible. Is that because at some time you've had to travel somewhere and you're only allowed a few possessions? I mean, it's quite extraordinary, that concept. was. Does that reflect something? Not wishing to be a psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, honestly, I don't think it comes from any personal experience of mine I think it's more that to have that um to have this novel be as terrifying as I wanted it to be quietly terrifying I wanted the main character just to be so incredibly isolated on this farm in so many different ways and so many different levels so like you say her, her possessions are removed from her one by one by one. so she's that, that kind of strips away her identity it erodes her her identity and I wanted her to almost doubt herself halfway through the book you know because mm. she's got no support there's so many different things against her surviving um and and that stripping away of her possessions is one of those things because even if you're kind of a minimalist type person you still have some possessions that are very meaningful to you whether they've been through a journey with you or they've been passed down from someone so I, I i i figured that that was quite a horrible and evil thing to do is to remove someone's possessions systematically to kind of wear them down and and yet with all that horror it it's not a horror book for me i can't read horror i i just i just can't i i can't read stephen king those those sort of books and yet for me i i could I could read this because I, I don't know, you, you were just very, I felt in safe hands with you that yes, I was going to be scared and th there were extraordinary things covered in the book, but I, it wasn't one that I then wasn't going to be able to sleep for a month. And I think that, I think that's reassuring for readers because, okay, some people want that, but not everyone wants that. And you, you tread that line very well. I thought was, were you aware of that? Yeah, I really am, because 
I don't want to terrify for the sake of terrifying. I want mm. the whole of that terror to be underpinned with kind of love and empathy and kindness. Mm. That's really important to me. I don't want to shock and, and disturb for the sake of it. I want this book to be about the journey of that main character and how she manages psychologically through all of these terrible things and, and the love that she has, for example, for her sister who's in Manchester and things like that. I want, I want her to be a three-dimensional character. I don't want this to be just this terrible thing happens and this terrible thing happens. I want it to be about her finding comfort in things and finding strength in certain things and having memories of when times were better and having hopes of the future so yeah I definitely wanted that that balance and not for it to be straight out horror do you do you write in the same place every yeah. time yeah <laughs> so you, you you have to be sitting in a particular area place for the writing to happen I, I'm just kind of superstitious and scared that it's all going to fall apart and I'm going to forget how to do this. I'm <laughs> constantly, like when I start a new book, I'm very excited, but I'm also scared that it just, yeah. I won't work and I'll be able to, I won't be able to do it. So yeah, I sit on, on a, at my little Ikea desk and I pull the blinds and I close the door and I put my earplugs in. So I'm, I'm in my own little world and then I write a chapter in the morning and a chapter in the afternoon for those three weeks and that that process is not about being efficient or being I don't think it's a very good or or healthy process it just is something that I know I can get to the end of a book that way and then I can spend however many years I need perfecting it and working on it and what's your go-to if you're if you're struggling to to get the words out one day is there again part of that routine is there a particular candle you would light or as a drink you would have or I don't know some chocolate or is it just the immersion no. the isolation <laughs> yeah it's it's really getting into the head of the character weeks and weeks before I start writing and then when I start that first page I'm really in deep at that point I'm I'm in trouble at that point I can't go back and then I ne I don't let myself out so I, I still do the things I need to do you know as a as a family man I still load the dishwasher and pick up my kid but I'm not mentally very present so I can't do this for the whole year because you know my wife would probably divorce me so I just need to be she's 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 very uh, understanding of me being that intense and that focused on the scenes and the mood and the themes of the book for a few weeks that's okay and then at the end of that period I'm absolutely exhausted I'm completely kind of spent I'm just hmm. I and then I put it away for like six months before I look at it and that shows that you you give your all to the book. It, it's a, a huge thing, and and that comes across because I'm I'm not just sort of sucking up to you for no reason. If I didn't like the book, I would say, but it's it's just extraordinary. So I can't wait to see more people reading it and and hear more about it. It's um... well, thank you so much. I think it's all to do with the fact that I read a lot and I I'm constantly kind of thinking, wow, I'm nowhere near as good as this person. You know, if I read a Sarah Waters or a Cormac McCarthy or a Yagi Assi, mm -hmm. I'm just thinking, boy, you need to be more intense. You need to think about this more. You need to feel this more. You need to you need to up your game, you know, and and so, yeah, so I, I feel like I owe it to the readers to give my all and to, to go through that, really, to get it as, as good as I possibly can. Well, on behalf of your readers, thank you. <laughs> thank you for giving so, your all, because you. we appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for your time today. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me.
Well, that was amazing. Just great to talk to Will and hear more about his process. It, it makes me love the book even more if it's possible. Um, if you haven't read any of the Will Dean books, then his uh, there's three in the series so far, I believe. Dark Pines, Red Snow and I think Black River. Um, the Tuva series, they're, they're excellent as well. Well worth a read. Um, but The Last Thing to Burn by Will Dean out 7th of January. Now we better go on to another book that's out the 7th of January, something a little bit different uh, to Will's book. This is uh, written by the author B.A. Paris and it's called The Therapist. Um, and let me read you the blurb. Sorry, you can actually hear me, can't you? Getting out the, the blurb. But there you go. Tell me your secrets. When Alice and Theo moved into a newly renovated house in the Circle, a gated community of 12 exclusive houses, their new home is everything they've dreamed of. But appearances can be deceptive. Just as Alice is settling in and getting to know her new neighbours, she discovers a devastating grisly secret. Her new house is infamous, the notorious site of a murder just 18 months before, where the previous owner was found dead in her bath. Murder victim Nina was a therapist and Alice begins to feel a strong connection with the dead woman, having suffered a tragedy of her own. Alice becomes obsessed with the death of Nina and tries to find out what happened in her house, but no one wants to talk. Her neighbours are keeping secrets and things are not as perfect as they seem in the circle. Uh, I enjoyed it. It's a, a, a good sort of UK thriller. Um, I think if you've enjoyed other books by P.A. Barris, you will... Um, did I even say that right? Let's try again, Philippa. B.A. Paris. There you go. Uh, if you've enjoyed their other books, you will really enjoy this one. It's got the same sort of um, pace and consistency that, that their other books uh, deliver. I like the different sort of web of lies and how you're faced with a, an issue and you think you know where you are. But it turns out that the situation is quite different. And, and I enjoy that, the sort of the unravelling of secrets and um, the, the web of lies. As, as you go through the book, um, it's um, decently paced. It's, it's a good read and uh, certainly quite different to uh, the, <laughs> the last thing to burn. Um, but it's still got a sense of unease. And uh, at its heart, it's it's a good thriller. Um, and that's what so many of us look for. So, yes, that was a, an interesting one. The Therapist by B.A. Paris. Now let's come on to Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. So I was having to read, having to read, that sounds terrible. But I wouldn't have picked it up at this point, I have to say, if I hadn't ne needed to have read it. Um, it was uh, Lauren and the Books, her patron book club. Um, and we were doing Rebecca. Uh, to celebrate Lauren's birthday, she chose two of her most favourite books and then we got to vote to say which one we wanted. And uh, actually, I did vote for Rebecca because I was intrigued to read it again. As I said, last time I read it was at school uh, and literally the only thing I could remember were, were rhododendrons. Well, I thought I remembered that it was just nothing. And actually, it's a brilliant book. It's written well, but it's not written in a way that you can't immerse yourself into it. Um, so it's incredible how writing in the 1930s is is just so relatable and, and just brilliant. The pace, again, it's a bit of a theme with the books this week, but it's this feeling of unease. You know things are, are wrong, but you don't know what and, and you think you know, and then it's revealed a different way. Um, 
and it certainly made me want to go back and read more of hers. And I can safely say that Rebecca is about a lot more than rhododendrons. Um, I did also watch the uh, film that was released recently. I think it was on Netflix um, that's received quite a lot of bad publicity, unless I've just been seeing one one side of reviews. I I enjoyed it. Um, I didn't really consider who'd been cast in the right role or whatever. I just enjoyed it. I thought um, it was nice to see. Um, it gave me another element to the book. Uh, and yeah, I'm really glad. I'm really glad I read it. I'm going to hold on to gonna. There we go, Philippa. Well done. All that education down the toilet. I'm going to uh, hold on onto the book. Uh, it's it's a lovely one. Um, and incredible writing. And it just throw, shows that thrillers could be written just as well in the 1930s as they are in, in 2021. So there we go. Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Wonderful. Now we're going to come on to something quite different. The Poetry Pharmacy. Tried and True Prescriptions for the Heart, Mind and Soul. This is by William Steve. Sieghart. Um, it's a beautiful naked hardback. It's absolutely gorgeous. And what I love about this is that there are different conditions. For example, I've just come on to a page, need for reassurance. And you have some writing just um, about that particular ailment. And then you have a poem that that they have chosen. And so it's one to keep whether you're going through, I don't know, regret or depression or anxiety or I don't know, all sorts of things. So many of them are covered in this book. Um, it's it's a smaller one. Well, I suppose it's the same size as my Rebecca. Normally, I, I imagined it would be bigger than that, but it's not. But it's just beautiful. Definitely one to hold on to. This is not going anywhere. And I love a poetry book that you just don't sit there, consume it and it's done. That it's about a bit like these um, poems for every day of the year. This is a poem for every condition of the year. You're going through quite a few conditions if you if you cover them all. But um, let's let's find some more convalescence, emotional baggage, hopelessness, glumness, psychological scarring, compulsive behaviour, fear of the other, living with difference, fear of the unknown. Um, guilt at not living in the moment. Oh, my goodness. And there is a follow on, I believe. Um, yeah, so yet another book for me to put on my list. But I just thought this was great. It's a great present for people and it's a great present to yourself. Um, if you find poems soothing, um, then I think this is just a, a glorious one. And it's red as well. So and talking of another red book in all sorts of ways, this one is called Hitler and Stalin. Now, it's a long time ago that I went on a school trip to Russia. And I think the only thing I really learned on that trip was quite how much vodka can be purchased without teachers finding out. So that that's great. Um, so it's great. It's super to get a book that actually <laughs> 
tells me what I need to know. Um, I enjoyed this book, if I can say enjoyed, because it is a, a look at, at both Hitler and Stalin, sort of a compare and contrast. You have to be into nonfiction to enjoy this and you have to be into history. Um, but if you want an authority on the subject, if you want something that is very well written and well researched, then I think this is this is it. I mean, it's 450, 500 pages long. Uh, let's read the blurb. This compelling book on Hitler and Stalin, the culmination of 30 years work, examines the two tyrants during the Second World War, when Germany and the Soviet Union fought the biggest and bloodiest war in history. Yet despite the fact they were bitter opponents, best-selling historian Lawrence Rees shows that Hitler and Stalin were, to a large extent, different sides of the same coin. Hitler's charismatic leadership may contrast with Stalin's regimented rule by fear and his intransigence later in the war may contrast with Stalin's change in behaviour in response to events. But at a macro level, both were prepared to create undreamt of suffering, destroy individual liberty and twist facts in order to build the utopias they wanted. And while Hitler's creation of the Holocaust remains a singular crime, re-shows why we must not forget that Stalin committed a series of atrocities at the same time. Um, I think if you are into history or if you're looking for a present for someone, this would be ideal because, again, it's one you can dip into and out of, um, but it's just written with authority. You, you're not worrying about the source of the information and whether it's something that you can believe. I, I just felt very comfortable in taking that information on and trusting it. I thought it was a really good book. Again, one I'm going to keep to dip into. Um, it's not one that I would read in its entirety at that one point, but um, no, I just I just really enjoyed it. So there we go. That was Hitler and Stalin. And then the last book, The Law of Innocence. I'm pulling the piece. Sorry for all the paper noises. Written by Michael Connolly. The minute I heard what this book was about, I was getting it because it's about the Lincoln lawyer. So you may know Michael Connolly has written all the Bosch books, um, but also we mustn't forget his lawyer series, Mickey Haller. Um, and uh, OK, let, let's read the, the blurb. Um, the most important case of his life, only this time the defendant is himself. The law of innocence is unwritten. It will not be found in a leather-bound code book. It will never be argued in a courtroom. In nature, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. In the law of innocence, for every man not guilty of a crime, there is a man out there who is. And to prove true innocence, the guilty man must be found and exposed to the world. Heading home after winning his latest case, defence attorney Mickey Haller, the Lincoln lawyer, is pulled over by the police. They open the trunk of his car to find the body of a former client. Haller knows the law inside out. He will be charged with murder. He will have to build his case from behind bars and the trial will be the trial of his life because Mickey Haller will defend himself in court. With watertight evidence stacked against him, Haller will need every trick in the book to prove he was framed. But a not guilty verdict isn't enough. In order to truly walk free, Haller knows he must find the real killer. That is the law of innocence. This was extraordinary. I mean, crikey, Michael Connolly can, can write. There, there's, there's no mistaking that. I particularly enjoy his Mickey Haller series. And this one, uh, possibly his best yet. I, I listened to the audiobook as well. That was narrated superbly. Um, it's just got everything that you want from a good legal story. Just uh, just exceptional. So if you're into crime, thrillers, 
uh, legal thrillers, I think you would you would adore this book. You don't have to have read any of the others, I think, to enjoy this. Um, yes, it might get you started on reading every book Michael Conley has ever read, written, um, but uh, oh, it's just great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So there we go. I think we've covered quite a few books this week. We had uh, The Last Thing to Burn by Will Dean, The Therapist by B.O. Paris, Rebecca, Daphne du Maurier, The Poetry Pharmacy, William C. Cart, Hitler and Stalin by Laurence Rees, and The Law of Innocence by Michael Connolly. Some fantastic books there. Last, the Last Thing to Burn was extraordinary. The Law of Innocence was um, just brilliant. Um, and lots of other great books there as well. So uh, I think I need to leave you for now. Next week, as you can imagine, I've got some great books to talk to you about. Another super author interview, possibly a book box unopening, which will be very exciting. So we've, we've made it to 2021. Let's keep going. You look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.